Wonderful. Good evening, everybody. That was a terrible response, quite frankly. I'll just come up and do that again. Good evening, everybody. Really, really good to see you. Great to see you on this Saturday evening, a day of summer and storms all in one day. And snow tomorrow. How many are hoping for some snow? Okay. For those who just raised your hand, I give you permission, if you're sitting next to them, to slap them for... Great to see you. Welcome to uh, guests here with us this evening. We know, we often say it, but we know it can be a challenge to go to a new church. And uh, so if you've taken the risks to be here uh, this weekend with us, this is your first time, a very huge welcome to you. Maybe you came last weekend. I understand that uh, over the course of the various services, both uh, here and at Windsor and uh, in Old Town last weekend, there were around 10,000 people in the services. That's pretty good news, isn't it? You can almost get mildly excited about that, can you? And uh, not so much the large numbers, but uh, the large numbers of people hearing about the resurrection of Jesus. And if you were here last week and now you've come back this week, thanks for, for coming along again. Uh, there are many great churches in this area. Thanks for being with us. And there's a bulletin in your seat back. You can get more information about the church in that. Uh, there's the website, timberlinechurch.org, and of course, there are tables in the mall featuring various ministries as well that will give you uh, more information. And often when people come to a church like Timberline, they, they come a couple of times or they come a few dozen times, and then they think, what next? And Summit, Summit is an ideal opportunity to find out about what's next, and that's happening tomorrow evening, 5 p.m. till 8 p.m. Our pastor, Darry Northrup, and his wife, Bonnie, uh, we'll be leading that. There's a light meal served. It's free. There's childcare, and we ask you to come along about 4:30. Just show up there, register, and Summit is there for you. Also, before we get into the word tonight, next weekend is our annual mission celebration weekend, and there are two uh, celebration mission celebration dinners that are happening next weekend. Uh, Sunday evening, right here uh, at Timberline at 6 p.m. Uh, Timberline Fort Collins, and then Monday evening, 6 p.m., uh, over at Timberline Windsor. And the theme is, What Can Faith Do? It'll be thinking, reflecting on the legacy that Timberline has in missions and celebrating the fact that we have five Timberline families who are moving into full-time uh, global missions this summer. There'll be a special missions program for children during the dinners, uh, but we're expecting these events to sell out pretty quick because dinner is included. It, uh, it is provided by the Texas Roadhouse, and it's $2. There's great excitement about that. <laughs> Get your tickets. They're in the mall. Uh, hope that you can be there. Well, we're continuing this uh, series, this eyewitness news series. We are we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and this weekend uh, we're looking at a series of uh, episodes of confrontation and conflict in the life of Jesus. This, uh, these events probably took place around somewhere between eight and twelve months before his crucifixion. And now, very quickly, early on in Mark's gospel, he is moving into a collision course. So if you, if you uh, have Bibles with you, um, we're going to be looking at that uh, through the course of this message. And uh, I want you to open them, please, if you have a Bible, to Mark chapter 2. 
And we're going to be looking at Mark 2 and Mark 3 as well. Ladies, let me ask you a question, married ladies here this evening. How many married ladies would confess to the reality that occasionally when you're out with your husband, he sometimes is critical of other drivers? If that is true in your experience, just indicate right now if you, you would. God bless you. I see those hands. That's great. How many of you would admit to the fact that sometimes when you're out with your husband and you're driving, he is critical of your driving? How many? Well, uh, Kay and I experience uh, this occasionally, especially when uh, we've just got back from England where we drive on the left-hand side of the road, which, of course, is in accordance with the divine plan. And I'm driving along, and I suddenly realize, honey, look, there is a crazy guy, and he is heading right towards us. And uh, I, 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 I stare at this driver who is heading on a collision course towards me, and I, I, I grip the steering wheel, and my eyes stare wildly ahead, and I am just willing him to pull over. And suddenly, Kay realizes uh, what is happening, and she speaks beautifully life-changing words. She says, Jeff, this is America. You are on the incorrect side of the road. It is your fault that we are on a collision course. And then she says, perhaps, do you feel led to change lanes? Move over or you'll cause a collision. In this section of Mark's gospel that we're thinking about this weekend, Jesus is on a collision course. The theologians call this section of Mark the collision or the conflict narratives. But it's a very surprising collision because it isn't that Jesus is clashing with the sinners who are upset with him because they're, they're, he's messing up their fun and, and, and they're irritated. They don't want to change their ways. On the contrary, brothers and sisters, the sinners are inviting Jesus to their parties. No, strangely, the collision was with passionate, zealous religion and the primary source of the conflict was a group called the Pharisees. Now, many of us have heard of the Pharisees. They appear uh, frequently uh, in Scripture. Anyone ever seen one of those children's pop-up books where you open the book and up pops Mickey Mouse? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, they pop up all over the place. They just keep following Jesus around. There were several thousand of them in Jesus' day spread throughout the country. Now, remember that Israel was under Roman occupation at this period in their history. And there were four main groups that emerged at that time and, and forged a response to the difficulty and challenge of that Roman uh, occupation. There were the Essenes. The Essenes were a monastic group. They, they lived on the shores of the Dead Sea. And they were separatists. Get out of society and set up your own thing. Let's just get away from that big, bad world. And then there were the Sadducees. Anyone remember what they used to teach in Sunday school about the Sadducees? They didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. Yeah, it was a bad gag then, and it's a bad one now. 
Then there were the, they, their, their view was, well, well, get along with the Romans. They were conciliatory. They wanted to broker a, an ongoing peaceful relationship. The opposite of them was the zealots. The zealots were, were angry. They were a military resistance group, and they wanted to get rid of the problem by force. And then there were the Pharisees, a largely middle-class group, uh, a group, their name Pharisee means separated. And they loved the law and they loved their religion and they felt that if they could just get Israel to be holy enough, separated enough morally, ethically, spiritually, then revival would come. Their view was get apart from the problems of the world or rather be apart uh, and then everything would change. But guess what? Here in Mark's gospel, they are on a collision course with Jesus. Rather than forging an alliance with this holiness group, he is about to plow into them. And there were three main flashpoints in this episode. We'll explore them a little more in detail in a moment. First of all, the Pharisees were fasting. The Pharisees used to fast every Monday and every Thursday throughout the year. They weren't required to do that, but they did. And Jesus and his disciples were not fasting, they were feasting. One definition of religious people is that they can be people who get very upset when they get the slightest suspicion that someone somewhere is having more fun than they are. And that's exactly what was happening here. They were fasting, and Jesus and his disciples were not. Secondly, they were passionate about the Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples had been plucking some corn on the Sabbath, collision time. And then thirdly, Jesus went to the synagogue and healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, which was seen by then to be working on the Sabbath day. It was collision time. You see, what was happening here is that Jesus was colliding with passionate religion. Now, I've got a, a rather shocking statement to make. I've, I've been in pastoral leadership and ministry now for 35 years. I started when I was four. And so, therefore, <laughs> over the last three and a half decades, I've seen quite a lot of church life. And here is my shocking discovery, which has been irritating me and bugging me and is driving me now to write a book on the subject called A Dangerous Passion. I've got the title, that's it, nothing more so far. <laughs> here is the discovery. Most of the problems that I have seen in church life have not been created by people on the fringe of church. But most of the problems that I've ever encountered have actually come from zealous, passionate Christians whose passion has been misdirected and misguided. We know, don't we, that Christianity is not a hobby. It's all about passion. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, die to self, follow him. That's, that's passion. He says very clearly in the book of Revelation, speaking to the seven churches, lukewarm spirituality makes him sick. That calls for passion. The call to us is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's passion. The disciples were all martyred except John, and he died in exile. That's passion. I am not calling for a mediocre Christianity. But there is a difference between passion 
and extremism. Someone once said that the definition of a fanatic is that they're probably more committed to Jesus than you are. I actually think that's a thoroughly unhelpful statement. It's a thoughtless statement because it gives the impression that passion is enough. Passion is not enough. And now, when people become Christians, I get excited and I get worried. I get excited that they're meeting Jesus, and I get worried about the kind of Christians that they're going to become. Are they going to be healthily passionate, or are they going to be extremists? So let's, let's have a think about this. And if you're following along in the bulletin, follow along with me. Let's think about Christian extremism. First of all, Christian extremists want others to conform to their ideas even when they're wrong. Christian extremists want others to conform to their ideas even when they're wrong. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, please note that as we read here in Mark that the Pharisees came to Jesus, Matthew, in his account of this same episode, gives us a very interesting piece of side information. Chapter 9, Matthew 9, it says, Then John's disciples came and asked Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? This is shocking stuff. Because the the disciples of John the Baptist, who had prepared the way of the Lord, had forged a very unlikely coalition with the Pharisees. John the Baptist himself had welcomed the Pharisees out in the wilderness by saying, Hello, you vipers. Not exactly an engaging way to welcome people to church. John saw through their veneer of their religion. But now the disciples of John the Baptist are confused. John himself is in prison. The ascetic, disciplined approach of the Pharisees seems more like their way than the party-going, eating and drinking with sinners way of Jesus. And so they form an alliance with the Pharisees. You see, they've been getting it right, but now they're getting it wrong. In fact, John the Baptist himself, when he was in prison... He was thinking that Jesus was not turning out to be the Messiah that he thought Jesus would be. And in Matthew chapter 11, he says, he sends a message to Jesus and he says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? In other words, are you you sure you're the Messiah? Here's the point. Often passionate people who've been right don't realize that they can then get it terribly wrong. And some of us do our lives just like that. The very possibility that we could be wrong causes us to think that the universe might explode. That's why, ladies, we've been talking about driving. That's why some of us men, when we're lost, we don't like to stop and ask for directions. For this would concede defeat. We like to think that we are in the know. And some people do church life, they do friendship, they do marriage with this idea that they could never be wrong. And not only that, they want everybody else to be like them, to do faith like they do faith. 
The law only required that fasting should happen on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. But the Pharisees went beyond that, and now they and John's disciples were wanting Jesus and his disciples to do it their way. And by the way, extremists, in thinking that they're right, sometimes they ask questions, but they don't normally listen to the answers. I've told you before uh, here in Timberline that... um, Every now and again, do you do this? You have to call up about your mobile, your cell phone, your bank account, your utility bill, and you speak to a robot, don't you? And they play you music to go mad by, and you, you press one for this and two for that and three for something else, and, and then you get to speak to a real live human being. It's very exciting, but wait, because you need to answer the security questions. And so they ask you your pet's favorite hobby and your great aunt's color of her eyes and that sort of thing. And I was talking to this lady and I was going through the security routine and she said, Jeff, uh, your wife Kay is the primary account holder on this account for your cell phone. I said, right. She said, is your wife there with you right now? I said, yes. In fact, we've been together for 33 years now and we've been wonderfully happy. Thanks so much for asking. And then she asked me a question that showed me that she was simply reading the script. She said, and you are your wife's husband, are you? (laughs) Stunned, I said, yes, yes. That's why I call her my, um, my... You see, religious people, extremist religious people, sometimes they're good at asking questions. And by the way, sometimes they ask questions just for the sake of being asked how to ask a question. Ha <laughs> ha, I may be able to catch you out with this one. Do we tend to think that we're right and that we want others to do Christianity just exactly the way we do it? Secondly, extremists normally demand more than God requires. Extremists demand more than God requires. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, actually, We've already seen that they were doing more fasting than they were required to do. And there was nothing wrong with what the disciples of Jesus were doing. Deuteronomy 23, 25, uh, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands. This was entirely fine. But you see, let me show you what religious people do. Religious people take a core principle and then they build a fence around it Then they build a fence around the fence, around the fence, around the fence, around the fence. And they end up with a whole bunch of rules. Can I encourage us to really think about our Christianity? And just because great-great-grandma, who was a wonderful, godly Christian, followed that principle doesn't mean that it's right. And we don't discredit her memory if we wrestle with and ask questions about that idea that she had. When IBM was the primary leader in computers in the world, they had one mission statement slogan or a one-word mission statement. It was simply think. Think. And one of the things I, I long for is that more of us as Christians would think. 
wrestle with ideas about our faith. Occasionally, I meet Christians so narrow-minded, their ears actually touch in the middle. <laughs> they don't want to think, well, you're just, just tell me what I'm supposed to believe, pastor. And you know, we need to think about our faith because challenging legalism always sounds like liberalism. It's the way it is. Not only that, but let's embrace a joyful Christianity because Jesus' response to this was, well, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? They cannot as long as they have him with them. He's referring to himself. In the Old Testament, the, the, the bridegroom represented God himself. And Jesus was saying, I am with my friends. Now is the time to celebrate and not to fast. But you see, have you ever noticed that one of the challenges about extremism is that, frankly, it doesn't like laughter much. Every now and again, I go preach somewhere and I get into trouble because people say, we smiled during the service. How dare you? Do you not know that we are the frozen chosen? <laughs> Last weekend, I was in Texas and a 10-year-old lad came up to me and he looked up at me and I won't try and impersonate his, his Texas accent, but he looked up at me and he said, I like you. He said, you're old, but you're not grumpy. <laughs> I slapped him round the head. <laughs> now, of course, I didn't. I was delighted. But the Pharisees, they'd put, they, they whitened their faces to look pale. They'd put ashes on their heads, they wore their clothes in disarray, they refused to wash, they made an art out of looking miserable. Have you ever met Christians like that? Yes, we're saved. Yes, it's a very serious business. In fact, if, if you like, you can come, uh, come to our church and you can become just like me. And the world yells, no thank you. Do any of us live with a lingering sense that to laugh is somehow suspicious? Do we think about our faith? Extremists demand more than God requires. Thirdly, extremists, quickly, extremists are more passionate about principles than people. They're more passionate about principles than people. Look at chapter 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. They're really after Jesus now. The Greek in this passage is in the continuous tense, which means they kept on watching him, trying to catch him out. And the compound verb in this, in the Greek here, means to watch someone closely as one who dogs the steps of another. They were, they were, they were like his shadow. They were following him around, iPad in hand, just waiting to catch him out. So what does Jesus do? There's a man with a withered, shriveled hand, probably because of irreparable nerve damage. And they're having all of this muttering and debate. And Jesus says to the man, stand up. And he has him stand up in front 
of everybody. The synagogue in those days was, was held in a circle. And so uh, the, the literal translation of this is that he had the man stand up in the middle of them. Jesus didn't get into an intensive debate. He just said, you fella, you stand up. And suddenly in that moment, brothers and sisters, these Pharisees were forced to realize that it wasn't good enough to just talk about principles. We're talking about a real live human being here. We're talking about people. One of the things I noticed about extremist Christians is that they tend to get into single issues. They get locked into one element of the Christian faith, and that's all they ever want to talk about. And then by their tone and their tendency to categorize people, they forget that we're talking about people. And we get very loud in talking about principles. And Jesus had this man stand up in the middle of all of them in a moment of reminder. We're talking about people here. In your workplace, is it possible that you've been tempted to try and win the argument about Jesus, but you've lost sight of the fact that it's people that you're talking to, and your job is not to win? Your task is to love. Extremists are more passionate about principles than people. Fourthly, extremists are stubborn and distressing. Look at verse 5. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. This word stubborn here, it means to cover with a thick skin, to be covered with a callous and the New English Bible, it's got a very striking translation. It says, looking around at them with anger and sorrow at their obstinate stupidity. Wow. Now, the word for anger here is not thumos, which means an ignition of uh, anger, but rather orge, which means a settled state of mind where you continuously feel the same way about something and occasionally that expresses itself. In other words, Jesus is in complete control of himself, but he is always angry about stubbornness and arrogance. You see, the problem with extremism is you can't argue with it. How many... How many of you folks are on Facebook or Twitter? Any Facebook people here? Any, any Twitter? I'm on Facebook and I'm thinking about giving it up. It, and, and it's, can I be ever so honest with you? It's mainly because of the Christians on Facebook. It's the Christians who upset me. Not all of them, but a few of them. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. Because Christians, sometimes on Facebook, they put utterly ridiculous statements for the whole world to see. So when I got sick a couple of years ago, some, some people on Facebook, they, you know, I was pretty ill, and they put in capital letters with exclamation marks, you are not sick. You are whole in Jesus' name. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. As if the devil says, ooh. <laughs> They're using capital letters on Facebook now. <laughs> No one ever told me they were going to pull that trick. <laughs> a few months ago, somebody posted on Facebook, I don't know where he's from, 
he posted some, most of the time I ignore it, but this guy basically said, if you're ever depressed, it's because you've got a, you've got a real problem in your relationship with God. It was, it was theologically and pastorally disastrous and wrong. Don't hear that quote and think, I just said that. It, you couldn't be more wrong. And most of the time, I resist the temptation. But I, I just couldn't resist it. And I privately wrote back to him and said, I've got real theological and pastoral concerns about your statement. I don't know who the guy is. You should have seen what came back. Well, you've, I don't know who you are, Jeff, but you've just not had my revelation. So I wrote back. Well, I don't know who you are, Jeff, but you just don't have my ministry. Well, I don't know who you are, Jeff, but it's obvious to me, Jeff, that you've got a sin problem in your life. That's why we're having this dialogue. <laughs> well, I don't know who you are, Jeff, but actually all of my friends agree with me, so I think you must be wrong. It was... I'm getting a bit passionate about this. <laughs> it was utterly impossible to have a dialogue with him. Extremists are like that. If we have a theological view, come on, let's talk about it. Get the gloves off. Interrogate it with Scripture. But extremists are never willing to dialogue or, or discuss. Do we, have, do we have teachable hearts? Well, I'm going I'm to get to my last point and return to a place of peace. Number five, extremists can be self-righteous and murderous at the same time. They can be self-righteous and murderous at the same time. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. A couple of interesting things about this. First of all, they hated the Herodians. Herod was a puppet king who had bought the local throne. They hated him. But they were willing to team up with his supporters, with the Herodians to do away with Jesus. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because having got upset with Jesus for healing a man, they step outside the synagogue and go to work themselves on the Sabbath. And there's something really interesting here if you notice it. They go to work on arranging the killing of Jesus. And Jesus had said when he spoke to them, what is right? Is it right to do good and bring life on the Sabbath or do evil and to kill? In his statement to them, he prophesied what they were about to do. But the stunning blindness of all of this is that they were upset about him healing on the Sabbath, his disciples eating corn they were upset because he didn't join them in their fasting, and then they became a bunch of conspirators to murder. You see, brothers and sisters, that's the big problem with misguided passion. You don't see your blind spots. See, that's the nature of a blind spot. You don't see it. Anybody ever had that when you were out driving, and you didn't think that car was there? But for that millisecond, there's that blind spot in your mirror, and every person in this, listening to this message tonight, including me, we've all got blind spots. 
The question is whether we're willing to admit that and allow others to help us to see more clearly. Well, as we draw to a close, I just want to finish by, uh, by showing you a couple of photographs. Um, I'd like to ask the band to, to come back, and they're going to, to quietly play for us. And um, I want to show you a couple of photographs, if I may. The first one, how many of you have ever seen the film Dead Poets Society? Robin Williams? Raise your hand if you've ever seen that. Robin Williams, thanks you guys can just go ahead quietly play for us if you will. Uh, Robin Williams in that pretty amazing and inspirational film. He plays a, a, a rather eccentric teacher. And uh, the boys in his class, he, uh, he invites them to go outside the classroom into the entryway of the school where there's a trophy case and there are photographs of, uh, of former students. And he says to them, look into their eyes, boys. He says all these had hopes and dreams and ambitions. Just play if you would. And he says, uh, but now they're all dead. He said, we are, we are food for worms, boys. He said, one day we will all stop breathing, die, and turn cold. Look into their eyes. And then he says those famous words, carpe diem, seize the day. It's an inspiring moment. I was thinking about it. And then last week, I found another photograph which I'd like to, to show you. It's not very clear, but this is my Bible college class, 1975. Some of you will remember the 1970s. A, a fashion demon roamed the earth. <laughs> one, I can see some of you are saying, where is he? Where is he? Uh, at the top, Top left-hand side, four-in, stripy sweater, hair, smiling. Time is a ravager. Look into their eyes. I remember the day that photograph was taken. Look at their smiles. They had hopes and dreams and aspirations. We were going to change the world for Jesus by next week. There were some wonderful stories that came out of our Bible College 1975 class. There's a young lady there, a, a missionary who gave her life on the mission field in Zimbabwe, serving as a nurse, and died from AIDS-infected blood because of her refusal to not offer care in the most difficult surgical conditions. She was a hero of the faith. Just recently, I met up with three or four people in that photograph, and in different places, they're serving the Lord, this passionate group. But I also have to tell you that two of them took their own lives. Marriages disintegrated. 
Some of them walked away from faith. This man was our director of studies. His name's Julian. Walked up to me three days ago in England. So lovely to meet him again. This Bible college faculty poured their lives into us. But we were passionate. But passion is not enough. It needs to be shaped and guided and directed. Collision course, Jesus and extremist religion. God give us passion, but not extremism. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you so much tonight because you are not one who loves mere religion. In fact, Lord, you collide with it and you confront it. We realize the irony, Lord, as we continue this Eyewitness News series that some of your greatest opponents, indeed those who crucified you and helped organize that, were passionately religious people. And we wait before you this evening, Lord, and we just ask you to give us passion but save us from extremism. I've got two questions as our heads are bowed this evening. First of all, I want to talk to Christians here. I wonder how many of us would say, as I've talked this evening about wanting others to conform to the way we do things, not believing we could get it wrong, living a Christianity that demands more than God requires, being more passionate about principles than people, ending up being stubborn and blinded. I wonder how many of us could sense challenge in our own hearts about that, one or more of those areas. I know I have been challenged this week. And I'd love to include you in a prayer if you'd say, yeah, I can recognize some of this in, in me. If that's true for you, would you slip up your hand for a moment, please, and, and put it down? Just hold it up as a way of saying, yeah, I, I see that, and I don't want it. And, and you can put your hands down. Very quickly, maybe tonight you're not a Christian, and you haven't become a Christian because you've been put off by religion. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that all of this stuff has got nothing to do with religion extremist or otherwise it's all to do with a personal relationship with Jesus maybe you've resisted knowing him for a long time because of negative effects of religion and tonight you would like to know him you would like to become a Christian if that is true for you can I ask you please to just slip your hand up for a moment hold it there and then just put it down. It's your way of saying, yeah, I want the real, the real deal. Would you do that right now if that's true for you? Thank you so much. That's fantastic. And for those who've just raised their hands for that second invitation, can I say our prayer team are going to be here in about three minutes from now at the front. I'm going to be here. I'm going to hang around. would love to have an opportunity just to take a moment 
with you. We've got a booklet to give you as well that will help you understand what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus. So Lord, keep us passionate, but save us from the extreme, we pray. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Well, we're going to conclude our time together tonight by worshiping both in our singing and also in our giving. If you're a guest with us, you don't need to give, but do pop that connection card uh, into the offering. Let's initially remain seated. The ushers are coming, and I'd like to invite you just to begin to receive the offering right away as we, uh, as we sing and give together. Let's go for that. Let's worship the Lord. Into a new week. We thank you that we go not with just a set of ideas, but as we were celebrating last weekend, you are risen from the dead. Not just a, a collection of ideas, but a living Savior. Walk with us, we pray. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Amen. Great to see you, folks. God bless you. Have a great weekend. No snow tomorrow, please. And the prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, we would love to do that. God bless.